everyone. We good? Okay. Hello, everyone. Um, get out your Bibles. Go to Psalm chapter 16. Psalm is kind of in the middle of the Bible. Psalm chapter 16. I think we've had... Um, I think we can all point to moments in our lives where we've been in sermons or we're, at, we're asked the question, are you saved? And I'm sure we have maybe good moments of people asking that question and bad fear-mongering moments when that's happened. Whether it's from a pastor, a friend, or a chapel speaker, whatever, this is a great question to ask, are you saved? Um, because that is, of course, an urgent matter. Um, eternity's at stake, but um, I think it's also true that those types of questions or sermons about salvation can be done, and perhaps you've experienced this, in a manipulative, gimmicky, fear-mongering, don't you want to not go to hell? So be a Christian. And is is that the Christian message? Is that really what the Christian message is? Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. Obviously, I have a great concern for the salvation of students and teachers and faculty and staff and administration and maintenance staff. I have a concern for your salvation. Are you saved? Of course. That's not the question I have for you today. The question I have for you today is this. Teachers, students, administration, maintenance, everyone that can hear my voice right now. Ready for the question? Is Jesus your joy is God your joy is Jesus your satisfaction is he your pleasure is he your sustenance your delight the thing that sustains you here's why I ask this question because I don't think there are any shortcuts to answering this question it's something that can't be manufactured all of a sudden just to get the answer to the question and just get it over with. Students, is Jesus your joy? Yeah, Mr. Swindoll. I raised my hand, went to the front, prayed the... That's not what I asked you. I asked you, is Jesus your joy? Is he what sustains you? What you delight in? Teachers, administration, adults in the room. Is Jesus your joy? Of course he's my joy. I... Work at a Christian's... No, that's not what I asked you. Is Jesus your joy? Do you delight in him daily, regularly? You see, it really is, as you can hopefully evaluate for yourself, a diagnostic question. In other words, it really gets to the root of Christianity. It's not a question that can be answered. Yeah, you know, let me point to this experience in my life. That camp or that chapel sermon or I was raised in a... It's, there are no shortcuts. So here, here's, here's another way of thinking about the question. Maybe the question isn't as clear as Jesus, your joy. So here's another way of thinking of the question. This is, this is, these are a pastor that I particularly like, John Piper. This, he asked this question. There's a quote from him. He says, the, criti- the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. Listen, this is what he's going to ask. If you could have heaven with no sickness... And with all the friends you have ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? 
In other words, would heaven still be heaven to you if Jesus wasn't there? Let me break the news to you. Jesus is heaven. He's what makes heaven heaven. If he's not your delight, then heaven will be extremely boring. Jesus is what heaven is all about. He's literally the obsession of heaven. So those of you, those of you that had Ms. Coyasso, um, I think she had you guys learn the answer to this question in the Westminster Catechism. What is the chief end of man? You guys heard that question before? What's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Amen. So basically, what is the ultimate purpose of mankind? Those of you that are kind of out of this group right now. <laughs> What's the ultimate purpose of mankind? And the answer, biblically speaking, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So before we get to the text, I want you to consider that, that answer to that question. What I want you to see is that when God says, glorify me, He's not telling you to do anything that will ultimately disappoint or dissatisfy you. And when he says, enjoy me, delight in me, he's, he's not trying to play mind games on you or try to make you like lame stuff. Don't you like this lame Christian movie? You have to like it if you're a Christian. <laughs> no. So when God says, glorify me, it's inextricably tied to enjoy me. So what if I told you there's much more to consider than just the question, am I going to heaven or hell? There's more. There's so much more to consider. And again, I'm not saying those aren't important questions. Am I saved? Am I going to heaven? But today, we're focusing on something that's perhaps been lost in the message of Christianity. But it's present everywhere in the Bible. The joy of the Lord is my strength. So if you're here saying, you know, Mr. Swindle, I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer to the question, is Jesus my joy? Um, I, I believe he's, he's God. I believe he's the Savior. I believe that... He is the only way to God, the way, the truth, and life. I believe those propositions. Uh, I'm not sure I have this heart knowledge of Jesus, this affection for him. I want to know. Okay, that's what we're going to go through today. Or maybe you're here thinking, um, you know, I once had a joy for Jesus. He once was my joy. I don't know what happened. My schedule got flooded. And, or, or just certain anxieties or certain circumstances in my life and I'm just burdened and I want to reclaim that love that I had for Christ. I'm glad you're here today. Or maybe you're here and you're, and you're hearing these words, glory, eternity, infinity, enjoy God. And you've never heard these terms applied to God. I'm glad you're here today as well. So for everyone in here, I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak from the word of God today that he would stoke these flames of Jesus being not just Lord, Master, but our joy. So um, let's turn to Psalm 16 and uh, let's pray. Abba Father, Lord, I ask on behalf of all gathered here, students, teachers, administration, maintenance staff, everyone in here, everyone in the hearing my voice right now, that you would be honored in our hearts in our worship in this time, that your word would reveal your supreme value and the infinite weight of your glory, that you would fashion in us hearts 
that are satisfied, pleased, happy in you alone. And for those in here that have received the gift of the new birth, the regenerated heart already, that you would stir again in them a greater capacity for finding their joy in you. And for those in here that feel lost or far off or cut off or outside of this this promise of a new heart, this new covenant, God, that you would grant them this new heart, that you would save us from the misery of our sinful hearts, of our self-destructive steps and plans. Take from us this heart of stone and give these dead bodies here beating hearts of tenderness, of flesh, of responsiveness to you. Create in us a heart that finds increasing, exceeding, day-by-day joy in your Son, Jesus, and all his promises. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, Psalm 16. Let's break this down section by section. Um, and remember, the key is, if you, you know, if you zone out, stuff goes over your head, just remember that question. Is Jesus my joy? How do I make Jesus my joy? I'm going to try and do the best I can to answer these questions for you. You don't have to accept a single word I say. Test what I say according to the scriptures. Because that is what you have to accept. That is all of our authority. So let's take a look. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the place of the dead or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so if you'd like to take notes, here are a few observations that I think can be derived from the text here. Number one, God, our exclusive source of complete satisfaction. Okay, I'll repeat that. God, colon, our exclusive source of complete satisfaction. Look at verse two there. Look at verse two. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Look at that phrase. Can you say, can we say this about our lives? I have nothing good apart from God. Psalm 34, this is a similar theme in the Psalms. Psalm 34, verses 9 through 10. It says, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Being a Christian means you don't miss out on anything that is valuable, anything that is good. Can you, man, that is, that's wild thinking that way. I don't think, like, that's not normal. Because I have God, I have everything. 
about all this other stuff that I really like. Like, it's not natural to think that way or to feel that way. Look at what Jesus says in, in Matthew 16. It says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These, look, at this, look at this phrase. Verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The tighter you grip onto your life, the more you're actually losing it. And giving your life away means gaining life. (laughs) This is crazy talking this way. This is not normal thinking this way, but it's true. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 3. I count everything as loss, everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, for lack of a better English word there, (laughs) in order that I may gain Christ. So here's the thing. I think we know this is technically, objectively true. Jesus is worthy, and uh, apparently he's amazing. We know that's technically a proposition of Christianity that, ha- that is objectively true. But these, these are not normal conclusions at which you arrive at with mere sentimentalism. It's not normal to think this way. It's not natural. And here's what I mean. That this infinite heart of pleasure and satisfaction in Christ is not, is not a normal, natural thing to the human sinful heart. Indeed, it is supernaturally given. This heart of delighting in God infinitely is supernaturally, sovereignly given by God, not naturally achieved through sentimentalism. I have no good apart from God. The only way you could possibly utter these words with complete sincerity is if God gives you the heart with the capacity and the ability to say and do such a thing. So everyone, let's pray these things to be so. Ask God to give you this heart that values him in this way. More and more, you are realizing the cost of following Jesus, which is everything. But ask God to remind you that you gain everything in Christ and you miss out on nothing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Point number two, godlessness. A life of counterfeit joy and inevitable misery. Verse 4. So I'll repeat that. Godlessness, colon. A life of counterfeit joy and inevitable, it's bound to happen, misery. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God or acquire another God for themselves, their sorrows shall multiply. Okay, so here's the thing. Part of recognizing and establishing for yourself a complete satisfaction and pleasure in God is is realizing the converse here. Reminding yourself that the promises of sin are lies. We sin because we believe it's promises. We don't sin because like we feel assigned to sin. I have to sin today. We sin because we want to. And we believe the promises and we like the satisfaction albeit temporary, of sin. It's a lie. Sin promises greater satisfaction that is found in God. 
And we sin because we freely want to. We believe that the pleasures of sin outweigh our complete and exclusive satisfaction in God. Here's what I mean. Personally, I don't think Satan is going around trying to lure people into sin by saying, come over here and come do this extremely evil sin and you want to be a drunkard and a murderer and don't you want to... I don't think that's, I don't think that's particularly tempting to anyone. Uh, maybe it is. Uh, but I think for most of us in here, we've experienced this, that Satan tempts us with things that are perhaps at face value, not even necessarily bad things. As it says in the Bible, Satan disguises himself as an angel, a minister of light. So, so let's take for example, there are a couple examples, but let's take one, academics. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with wanting to have good grades uh, and to value your academic performance. And uh, you know, you're saying, I wanna make sure when I grow up, I can support my family, I wanna contribute to society, I wanna serve other people. I want to glorify God in whatever field of study that is. Um, fair enough. And I, and I say, go for it. That's a godly, noble desire. But here's what happens. And I've seen this happen uh, many times. Sooner or later, later, excuse me, the devil twists that desire to be successful and responsible into something that pulls us away from the will of God for our lives. I've heard it all the time. You know, can't really focus on being part of a Christian community or joining a Bible study or reading my Bible or praying because I'm a little too busy at the moment with my academics. Let me warn you, the years will go by and Lord willing, you never get into this path, but if you do, Lord willing, you'll be able to look back and God gives you clarity and you say, wait a second, I started out trying to do well in school and be successful, but now I'm all the way over here and I'm spiritually famished. And I have no meaningful relationships in a Christian community. I have no idea what the Bible says. Someone asked me what faith I have. What hope do I have? Just have faith. That's not an answer. Like, I'm famished. I'm spiritually anorexic. How did I get all the way over here? Satan doesn't tempt you by saying, do you want to be spiritually incompetent? He, doesn't, he tempts you by saying, don't you want to be successful? He takes a good thing and distorts it and makes, and makes good things that God has given higher than our priority which is god so you know what that's called that's called the misery of idolatry and god is telling you do not believe the lies of earthly success and prosperity that is an endless cycle of unfulfillment of misery if you don't believe me that the world is a black hole of sorrow and misery I encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> if you've never read that book before, I encourage you, if what I'm saying is particularly uh, resonating with you or convicting you, read the book of Ecclesiastes tonight. Let me give you some highlights. This, so I'm quoting Ecclesiastes here. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all of it is vanity and a striving after the wind. In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases his sorrow i said in my heart come now i will test you with pleasure enjoy yourself but behold this also was vanity and then i said in my heart what happened to the fool will happen to me also why then have i been so very wise and i said in my heart this also is vanity for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance 
seeing that in the days to come, all will have long been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for man than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor can anything be taken from it. God has done it so that people should fear him. So there's some excerpts from, that's your little trailer for Ecclesiastes. What man does fades away, and someone else will take your place. But what God does lasts forever. All this to say what Psalm 16 verse 4 is saying, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Do not believe the counterfeit promises of sin. Your sorrows will multiply God has put eternity in your heart. So whether consciously or subconsciously, there's a brokenness that we're born with, a crookedness that only God can make straight in our hearts. God is offering you this endless cycle of joy and satisfaction, not rooting in your circumstance or your performance, but rooted in the finished work of Christ, which stands forever. So each time you believe the lies of sin and you're looking in the mirror with shame and regret and asking yourself, why did I believe sin again? Why am I here again? I've been here so many times before. Why do I keep multiplying this misery for myself? Who will save me from this body of death? This endless cycle of sorrow and misery. You know what that is? That is eternity in your heart. Crying out. The image of God in your soul screaming. Screaming. For something that lasts. A godless world is a joyless world. A godless world is a world of vanity. Point number three, God's word. The unshakable instruction and counsel for your life. God's word, the unshakable instruction and counsel for your life. So I started the sermon by asking all of us this question, is Jesus your joy? And then I eventually followed up by saying, how do I make Jesus my joy? You know, the answer is not complicated, but it's difficult to, uh, to do. It's simple, but it's, but it's hard. It's challenging is what I'm trying to say. You know what makes Jesus our joy more than anything else. <laughs> Meditating and resting in his word. Mr. Swindoll, why does that have to be the way that I have joy? God, that's the most boring thing ever. You're thinking that, right? I remember thinking that way. I've been there thinking the Bible's boring and that there have to be more spiritual, more fun, enjoyable, interesting ways of finding my joy in God. It has to be, it's kind of complicated, kind of intimidating. It's not as emotionally attractive to me. Okay, so to everyone in here, students, teachers, administration, maintenance folks, everyone in here, let me just address that, that philosophy about the Bible uh, let me just address that in a loving way, because I just, I just want you to see how wrong that is. Sorry. Um, 
and how worth your time the Bible is. I don't mean this in a condescending way at all. Because I know some of you out there are thinking, yeah, well, this is easy for you to say, Mr. Swinnell. Literally, your job is to read the Bible and teach it. Fair enough. Which is why I'm not making an argument off of my authority. Okay? (laughs) I'm going to make an argument on the Bible's authority of how worthy the Bible is for your attention. So listen, if you reject the value of meditating on God's word on a regular basis, let me just say what you're doing. One, uh, you're not disagreeing with some unmarried 25-year-old dude up here. Uh, you're disagreeing with the Bible. You're disagreeing with God. Okay? So, so number one, you're disagreeing with God if you don't see the Bible as worth your time. And number two, you're neglecting, frankly, your number one weapon to fight sin and to remind yourself and to satisfy yourself in God. Look at what Psalm 19 says. I don't have time to look at literally every single verse in the Bible of how amazing the Bible is, but look at Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It says... The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Or one verse in. Psalm 19, verse 7. Now we're on verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. The Bible is more valuable than all the riches. That's not normal to think that way. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Not normal, yet true. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Okay. So look, we all, myself included, need these reminders in the Bible because like I was saying, it's not normal to think this way, that some ancient collection of documents are so key to our joy. It's not normal. It's not natural to think that way. Yeah, true. It is true. We are born sinners. Here's the thing. Why is that not natural? Why is that not normal? Why does that not instantly make sense to us? Here's the thing. We're born sinners with a hostility to the things of God, and, and our minds, our desires, all of it is corrupted, and there's this influence that we're born with to stay away from the light of the Word of God. Because that's one of the things it does. It shines into our sinful lives. And that's what Jesus says in John 3. People don't like coming to light because it exposes their deeds are evil. And, and the Word of God is that. So that's something that's uncomfortable about the Bible because our sinful hearts don't want to be exposed to this all-seeing eye of the Word of God, this light of the Word of God. So once again, how do I value the Word of God in this way? How do I value Christ in this way? This is a supernaturally given capacity and ability. You need a new heart, a new mind. Need to be renewed and restored and created in you, fashioned in you by God Himself to value Him in this way. If and when God gives you that new heart, it also needs to be fought for every single day. In other words, if you see if you see in yourself right now that there is a lack of value of the Word of God in your life, you don't treasure it as much as you should. Ask God for this to change in your heart. 
ask him to help you fight for treasuring his word on a regular basis. Ask him. That's according to his will. And those are the prayers he likes saying yes to. The ones that are according to his will. So ask him to help you treasure his word more. Number four. Last observation of mine. Jesus, the ultimate pleasure. Jesus, the ultimate pleasure. So if you look at verse 11 there, it says, At your right hand, at God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Uh, which kind of leads you to the next question. Who is it that sits at the right hand? Because apparently that is where all the infinite pleasures are found. Look at what the New Testament says about this person at the right hand. Jesus. Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of God's nature. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 1. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and here's a key, for him. And he is before all things, and in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Look at the way Jesus talks about himself. John chapter 4. Whoever drinks of this water, he's talking about a well that he's next to in Samaria. Whoever drinks of this water, uh, or sorry, whoever drinks of this water that I will give him, not the water in the well, his water. Whoever drinks of this water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A little bit later, the disciples come, John chapter 4, verse 31, and they say, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus is saying the very thing that sustains him, that gives him joy, is the will of God. More so than food. And look at Matthew 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Who can talk this way about himself? I mean, this is crazy. Imagine if I stood in front of you this morning and said, you know what, guys? Write down every single word I say and share it for thousands of generations. Because every single word I, Mr. Swindoll, will say will give you eternal life. Imagine some random, just regular 30-year-old Jewish dude sitting by a well saying, the water that I will give you will give you eternal life. Like, how preposterous that looks. Like, we're used to hearing Jesus say stuff like that. But that's crazy talking that way about yourself. It's true. It's true. It's a supernatural thing to be shaped to think and to value God in this way. Can all this Christ stuff really satisfy me that much? Is there really enough of Jesus to go around that offers to satisfy me for all eternity? Is Jesus really that satisfying? You know, maybe you wouldn't say that out loud because that sounds kind of 
cringy coming from a chapel microphone. Is she just really satisfying? Maybe you wouldn't say it out loud. I think deep down we're all asking that question. Is this worth it? Will I be disappointed to put all my eggs in this basket? Is Jesus worthy? Is he really that worthy? Is he really that satisfying? Are these things true? Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, Apostle John, then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw, John speaking, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is Jesus worthy? Every tear, every pain, every circumstance... For all eternity, is he worthy? Please, I beg of you, the testimony of Scripture from cover to cover, is he worthy? He's the obsession of angels. Every knee will bow. Think of every earthly leader who rejected Christ to his face, who committed genocide on the Jewish people. Hitler will bow his knee willingly and say, He is worthy. That's mind blowing. Is he worthy? Is he worthy? And he gives to the thirsty water without payment. Is he worthy? So sinful our hearts, so depraved our minds to not see this infinite value that all creation is pointing to him. Is he worthy? The testimony of Scripture. I don't have time to go through every single thing. And frankly, I think this is something that the Holy Spirit convinces you of. It's not normal to think this way. Is he worthy? We think ourselves worthy, not Christ. It's not normal to think that way. Is he worthy? This is something the Holy Spirit must do. Now, as I promised, I said I would give three practical ways to make Christ your joy. You say, okay, Mr. Swindle, I agree with your your statements here. And uh, I want that. I want Christ to be my joy. 
I want to value Christ as honored and worthy of all my affections for all eternity. I want that delight forever. So let me give you three practical ways quickly of ways to make Jesus your joy. Number one, find delight and genuine love for the Christians that God has put in your life. Find delight, genuine love for the Christians that God has put in your life. That's from verse three, where it says, the saints in the land, the Christians, not you know, that's not saying like super Christians that the church says we really like them. All, all Christians are saints. So as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In other words, this is what I mean. Start developing a taste, a preference, a culture in your heart, in your life, where you want to be around mature, Bible-believing, faithful Christians. That, that is something that God has given to us to cultivate in us a greater maturity and a greater faithfulness and a greater strength. We help one another persevere in the faith. So if you're saying, man, I have a difficulty of making Christ my joy, I want you to ask yourself, are you surrounding yourself with faithful, Bible-believing, real Christians? Because that's something that I've experienced in my life from my family, from friends from church, that they, God through them sustains me and encourages me. And I think many people can attest to that. So that's number one. Find delight and genuine love for Christians that God has put in your life. In other words, hang out with more Christians. Prefer that. Um, value that time with other Christians. Number two, establish for yourself a daily discipline of reading and meditating on the Word of God. You know, the Bible says in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ. Faith is not some feeling that you kind of manufacture for yourself of saying, you know, this is the worldview that I want to go with. Um, faith is something that is built upon the revealed truth of God and and his promises and confidence and trust in his promises in scripture. Faith is built upon what the Bible says. So I say this to all who are sitting here and saying, man, I wish I had more faith or I wish I could go deeper. You know, it's very simple. God, like I was saying, builds up our faith through a greater commitment and familiarity with the scriptures. He builds faith through that. So whether it's finding, whether it's finding for yourself a Bible reading plan online in the Bible app or, or um, from Mr. Ardoir, these are people that provide um, Bible reading plans, whether it's gathering in a group of friends and studying the Bible together or joining a faithful Bible preaching, Bible believing church, important criterion, or just reading one chapter of the Bible every day, which frankly, I would hope you would find all of the above as worth your time. Um, I'm just encouraging you to establish a daily discipline of the Bible for your joy. So please don't misunderstand this. Uh, this is not me telling you to establish a legalistic, try-hard, get-your-act-together Christianity. <laughs> um, I'm saying this for your joy. That through this discipline, the Bible would become your delight. It will become your joy. Fight for it. Fight through it all. Fight for your joy in the Bible. Or in other words, what verses 7 through 8 says, or say in Psalm 16, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me, connected to his word. And I have set the Lord always before me, because he is on my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Okay, and number three, remind yourself, this is key, remind yourself that all the promises and pleasures of the universe are yours in Christ, who sits at the right hand of God. 
Second Corinthians verse one, or sorry, Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty says, "All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Jesus." That is why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen to God for His glory. That's why we finish our prayer in Jesus' name, Amen. Because that's the only way this stuff is fulfilled in Jesus' name, Amen. So all the promises of God for you are secured in Christ, given to you by promise. You need to remind yourself of that. I need to remind myself of that. If you are in Christ, you're perfectly loved by the Father as His perfect son or daughter. The way that the Father said about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. That same pleasure that God has in His son is given to you by promise through Christ. There's no giving or taking away from that perfect love that God has for Jesus, that the Father has for Jesus. Conversely, those who are outside of Christ will never achieve this perfect standing, are cut off from these promises before God. So please remind yourself that you are secure in Christ. You are unified with Christ. And if you feel outside of those promises right now, I just want to encourage you that, that this gift of Jesus' perfect obedience, perfect love of God, is not something that is earned or achieved through your Christian obedience. That is a burden that you cannot bear. You receive these promises by faith. Faith in Jesus' obedience, not your own. Make Jesus Christ your joy. That's what eternity is all about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time and for your Son being worthy of our attention. May this kingdom uh, over which your Son Christ rules, may your kingdom come in our lives. May your will be done. All the universe is your birthright. We belong to you. You made us for you. And you also, it pleased you to, to adopt sinners like us as your children that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. So I pray, I pray that you convict us all, but build us all up to have a greater desire to be around uh, more faithful Christians persevering together that we establish for ourselves a daily discipline of fighting against sin with the Word of God, fighting for our joy with the Word of God, the promises of Christ, and that we would daily remind ourselves and each other that Jesus Christ is worthy of all our affections and all our attention, that we will not be unsatisfied in Him, that we will not be put to shame, that all the joys of life with Him we have nothing lacking, all good, all good from you. Um, so may those things be supernaturally done in our hearts today. I pray all these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Do I just dismiss them? All right, you're dismissed. Second period.